So this morning, we are beginning a new series, Hope for the Holidays. I'm talking some about hope, and I've been thinking some about hope, actually quite a bit about hope these last few weeks. Advent stirs hope in me. Start thinking about uh, the words that the prophets spoke, looking forward to the Messiah coming, and then how it's fulfilled in Jesus, and the fact that he came, and then also, too, the words that Jesus spoke about his coming again. Not only that, but the prophets who spoke before him. And we look forward not only to, uh, we look forward to Jesus and his return, realizing that not only has he come once already, but he is coming again. I've been thinking some about hope. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, said, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Hope is a central part of our faith. Hope shapes the way we live today. The things that we hope for in the future shape how we live right now. But I want to explain, or I want to clarify what I mean by hope. Sometimes we use hope, or people around us use hope, and even we as Christians sometimes use hope in a way of almost like interchangeable with the word wish. I sure hope this works out. I sure wish this would turn out. Almost like, a, like the last-ditch effort. You know, just, oh, I hope that goes well. And really what we mean, the subtext there being is, I'm not sure if this is really going to go well at all, but I can still maybe hope. Sometimes we use hope that way, like a, like a wish. What I'm talking about is something different. The hope that we have in Christ is more about an expectation, looking forward expectantly, looking forward, say, for example, to Christ's return. I don't hope, hope that happens someday. <laughs> I hope, I expect, I live expectantly watching for it, waiting for it. This is the kind of hope I'm talking about. I'm wondering about you. As you have been in this season of Advent, is, is hope welling up in you? As you think about the things that, in Scripture that pointed to Jesus and how that was fulfilled in him and by him. Not only that, but the things that are spoken about his return, about his coming again. Do these things bring hope in you? Hope for his kingdom come. One day when spears are turned into pruning hooks and plows, sorry, uh, swords beat into plowshares, when there are no more tears, when the people of God gather together around the Lord's table and celebrate an amazing feast, no longer having hunger. Think about Christ's kingdom coming. Does that stir up hope in you? As we start thinking about the way things are and the way they will be, it can bring hope in us. It can bring longing as well. This morning we focus on hope. This thought that this good news is really true. That Jesus really came and really is coming. That God really is on the move. That the Holy Spirit really is at work in the world. Advent can stir up hope in us. But the question I have is, how do we wait in between the times? How do we let hope shape us? Do we wait doubting? I'm not sure what's going to happen. Do we wait despairing? Do we wait disregarding? 
Not even thinking about it. Not even spending time hoping. Or do we wait trusting? Trusting in God and expecting Him. Watching. Living watchful lives. Living lives busy in the Lord's work out in the field. So when He comes, He finds us about His work. How do we wait? This morning, I've been, actually this last week, I've been working through and reading Isaiah 7. I came to this passage because I've been planning to preach through Matthew um, as we move into 2018 to focus on the Gospel of Matthew as our Gospel series. But also, too, in Matthew, in chapter 1, Matthew makes this connection or recognizes this connection between Jesus, the fact that Mary was a virgin, the fact that Jesus is actually God with us, and seeing Jesus fulfill the text of Isaiah 7. And it says, a woman will be with child, and you will call him Emmanuel, God with us. So if you would open up your Bibles to Isaiah. Wrong. Uh, Open up your Bibles to Isaiah, or if you want to, your um, bulletins. Passenger. This is uh, difficult. You usually have a a, uh, pulpit to use. Doing this all in one hand here. So if you would read with me from verses 1 to 16. This is from Isaiah. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, soon of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied himself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Sher Jashuv, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and, do not be af- sorry, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of those two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, of a- and Aram and the son of uh, Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim too will be shattered to be a people, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now this is the part that I want us to hear. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths, depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you read, or you dread, will be laid to waste. 
the Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Let's pray that we would hear this word today. Lord God, we give you thanks for your scripture. We give you thanks for the words that you spoke through the prophets and these words that you spoke through Isaiah. Help us to hear your word, Holy Spirit. Give us insight and faithfulness to live. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, hope grows in trusting God. It's in trusting God with our future, in trusting God with our lives that our hope begins to grow. But as we look at this text, we need to get some background in the passage. So this is a map of the ancient Near East. It doesn't show up as well on this slide. I think that one, the, the color is a bit better, but you can barely see the shading difference. This is the Assyrian Empire. runs up through uh, Iran, Iran and Iraq, Turkey, Syria, down through Israel, Jordan, pretty much every country of the Middle East. Um, it's, that's the, the nation or the, the empire of Assyria. And in 735 BC, Assyria was on the move, coming to take over parts uh, of that whole empire. Well, we've been reading about uh, Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, the purple area there. And we're also, too, about Rezin, the king of Aram, which is the gold at the top, and Pekah, which is the king of green, Israel, the northern kingdom. The two at the top, Aram and Israel, they are feeling threatened by the Syrian um, king, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, but you don't need to worry about that name. But, um, and so to, to, stand, to withstand his invasion, what they wanted to do was to have Judah join their alliance as well as Egypt. But King Ahaz, actually he was in his 20s at the time, refused. And they came and they attacked him and he withstood their first attack. What they wanted to do, if you remember from the text, they wanted to have Tabil uh, to be their, their new king because he would align with them so that they would have all three countries together. So in his fear, Ahaz comes up with a plan. Rather than align with the northern Israel and with, um, and with Aram, he says, I'll talk with the Assyrians myself and I'll make an alliance with them. That's who we're really afraid of. It's kind of, if you read it in Second uh, Kings uh, chapter 6. So that's when Isaiah comes to him. Isaiah comes to him and begins speaking these words that the Lord had given him. He meets him at the upper aqueduct, if you remember from the passage. No doubt, or I'm guessing, or actually the scholars as I read, thinking that probably um, Ahaz was checking out the water supply to look at how they would withstand if they were to, uh, to be um, a, siege, um, a siege around their city, if they were to be cut off, how would they have water to drink? And so Isaiah comes to him, and begins speaking to him to trust God, to not lean on his own understanding. If remember, he says, this will not happen. That smoldering fire with those two kings from the north, they will not succeed. And he even goes to Isaiah, or Isaiah even asked Ahaz to ask the Lord for a sign. Let the Lord show you. He says, from the deepest depths to the highest heights, 
ask him for a sign. But it's interesting because Ahaz says, no, I will not. I will not put the Lord to the test. It sounds a lot like the way the uh, passage from Deuteronomy that Jesus quoted when Satan was tempting him. Do not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz here, using scripture, says, I will not test the Lord. But it's interesting because as I read this passage and as you read through Kings and um, that I don't think so much that Ahaz was worried about testing the Lord. I think Ahaz was more about not wanting to trust the Lord. Rather than trusting God, because he's looking at two kingdoms that are aligned against them, not only that, but a larger Assyrian empire that's coming into their region to overtake all of them. And he's trying to make the pragmatic move. Trying to make what do what makes sense from a human standpoint leaning on his own understanding. So Ahaz chews the human way and then tries to spiritualize it, saying, I'm not going to test the Lord. But really what he's saying is, I won't trust him. So God answers. Ahaz has failed to trust the Lord. And so God answers Ahaz. If you look at the passage, it says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then, listen to this, Isaiah says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It says, The virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. So, virgin. All sorts of thoughts about this. The, the Hebrew word underneath what we have in English as virgin is a little bit broader than uh, virgin specifically, but in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, I'm getting too detailed. Anyways, I'm going with virgin. <laughs> uh, historically, how it works out, and I think that's what is uh, a, a good assumption here, a good uh, place to begin. And so, but it's interesting when we think of virgin, we have to be careful that we don't make too much of that. And what I mean by that is because there was one child who was born of a woman and God, Jesus. And so I'm not sure that this is another God-born son. I don't think it is. But that's not to say that God couldn't miraculously have a woman to have a child, uh, her being a virgin. I think the point is not to make too much of this as she somehow is God the Father or what, but to point out or to make the, to, to realize is that this virgin birth is miraculous. That God is making a sign here out of something miraculous. So that's the woman. We don't know who the woman is. Reading through Isaiah, there are... There's no places where the woman is, is identified. And Emmanuel, it's actually the, the Hebrew word is Emmanuel, yeah, which is with us, El is God, with us God. And reading this too, again, we're so used to, or at least I'm so used to reading this in terms of Jesus that I think the child is God who is with us. But again, we have to be careful. There is only one child who is both human, fully human, and fully God, Jesus. 
And so I'm wondering is if this child, much like Isaiah's children, are given names that indicate what God is doing. Like uh, one of Isaiah's sons was uh, Sher Jashuv, which means um, a remnant will remain. That's what the boy's name is. A remnant will remain. Um, and so getting back to this, is that I wonder if this Emmanuel is actually meaning God is with us in terms of God is for us. God won't abandon us. God won't leave us. God is with his people. And as you read through Isaiah, there's no place where the child is identified. We don't find Emmanuel in the rest of Isaiah. There's one place where it talks about Emmanuel's uh, land in Isaiah 8, but we don't find out who actually this child is. I wonder if God did that on purpose to help us see this Emmanuel as, as, a symbol, as a symbol or as a sign that actually points to one greater. So we have the child or the virgin will be with a child and they'll give, him the, give birth to a son and his name will be Emmanuel. And it talks about what he'll eat. He'll eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Some have thought that this curds and honey are actually um, royal food. It's rich food. But as you read more in the text, let me read this to you. This is from just a little bit later in chapter 7. It says, In that day the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, so the king of Assyria is this razor, to shave your heads and hair on your legs and to take off your beards also, to, to shame them. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats, and because of the abundance of the milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place where, where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will be only briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hope, you will no longer go there for fear of briars and thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and sheep run. I think when he's saying this child is eating curds and honey, he's referring to this remnant who will still remain there eating essentially wild food. The honey is something that you gather. The place will be filled with briars and thorns. So this isn't royal food. This is remnant food food of those who are left. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. Now this is where the prophecy begins to fulfill, to fill out in Isaiah and in Ahaz's time. Because in 7, so this is 735 roughly when Isaiah is speaking these words. In 734, King Tiglath-Pileser comes from the north and runs down the coast and cuts um, a swath and cuts Egypt off from the rest. Then in 722, Aram and North Israel are both sacked. They're both taken over by Assyria, conquered. That these two kings who were coming against Ahaz did not succeed. In fact, they themselves were defeated. The trouble is, judgment is also coming for the house of David. 
the Lord will bring on you, speaking to Ahaz, you and your people, and on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So the whole thing that Ahaz is trying to avoid, of being conquered, of being overthrown, he brings on himself by aligning himself with Assyria, with King Teglath-Pileser. Trying to undo the attack of North Israel and of Aram, he actually brings his own destruction. Part of it is because his plan backfired, but I think his plan backfired because he was leaning on his own understanding and not trusting the Lord. So this is the situation. This is what happened in, in Isaiah's time. This was the, the first meaning of this prophecy, these words that Isaiah spoke. This was the first time that they began to be fulfilled. But then they lay dormant for 722 years. These words lay dormant. And then God begins to fulfill them. God is faithful and begins to fill these words out when the Holy Spirit comes to rest on a young girl named Mary in the backwater town of Nazareth in the year 0 AD in Israel. This prophecy that had been laying dormant for 722 years begins to be fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Jesus that once again a virgin gives birth to a son, but this time not just a miraculous virgin, but actually a virgin whose child is conceived by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. That Yahweh, the God, the creator of everything, is the father of this child. And this child who is born is not, uh, not Emmanuel in terms of God who is for us, his name is not symbolic. His name is literal. He is actually God in the flesh, God with us. God no longer um, waiting for us to figure it out, no longer uh, hoping that we get it right, but God who bring, takes on flesh and comes and dwells among us. It's this Emmanuel. This is the child who fills it. I think of prophecies, the things that the prophets spoke and how they definitely have an, an original meaning. The prophets, when they speak these words, they made sense to the people they spoke them to. But they have these loops that they are fulfilled not only once, but sometimes twice, sometimes more. Here we are seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy. That not only was it partially fulfilled in Isaiah's time, but it was completely filled through Jesus Christ. That he is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. He is the child who is rightly called Emmanuel. And they gave him the name Yeshua, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. I think of these things and how this stirs up hope. Hope because these words were spoken almost 2,700 years before us. They had meaning when they were first spoken and they had meaning especially when Jesus was born, when he came his first time. But they stir up hope in me because God is faithful. God is faithful. The words that he speaks 
he fulfills them. The promises he makes, he keeps them. Advent is a time of remembering what God has said, remembering that Jesus has come and looking forward to his coming again. God was faithful to the things that he said about about, uh, David's family, that one day a ruler would come from the line of David, despite the things that Ahaz did to mess it up. The fact, despite the fact that Ahaz did not trust the Lord, God was still faithful to David and to his family, raising a son. Jesus fulfills these words. He fulfills them in ways that, is, that is still, we're still just trying to figure out. And all of this grows hope in us that God is faithful. And because he is faithful, because he is trustworthy, that builds hope in us. Hope that does not look forward to Christ's return and say, well, I I sure hope it happens. But hope that looks forward waiting with expectation, expectantly. Hoping, expecting that Jesus is coming. Expecting that God is on the move. Hoping and waiting and expecting that the Holy Spirit is at work today. This is the good news of the scriptures. That God makes amazing promises and fulfills them. He has fulfilled it in Jesus in his first coming. He will fulfill it when he comes again. This is our hope. That we trust in God. Amen.